The American retailer CVS Pharmacy is the latest to suspend the sale of a heartburn drug which is being investigated for links to cancer. It follows concern in several countries over Zantac and other similar products. You can't have failed to have noticed that ranitidine disappeared from pharmacy shelves two years ago. But do you know why? On this month's PJ Pod, we'll explore what happened, starting with the person who first spotted the problem. As soon as it went into that screen for nitrosamines, we saw uh, just an astounding amount of NDMA that was, uh, honestly, the first reaction is there's no way that that could be true. And hear from pharmacists about the impact it's had on patients. It was quite worrying when that was announced. Um, at the beginning, not a lot of people really understood, I think, the full scope of what was happening. A lot of people thought it was going to be a shortage and not a full recall of everything. We'll also be investigating whether a recent development in the manufacturing of the active ingredient in ranitidine means there's hope of a comeback. Problems with NDMA contamination aren't new. Over the past few years, this probable human carcinogen, and we'll dig into that word probable later, has been found in some batches of valsartan and metformin, leading to partial recalls. However, with ranitidine, it soon became clear that the contamination was more widespread. Even so, at the beginning, most pharmacists thought ranitidine's problems would be short-lived. Here's Mikim Patel, lead pharmacist in gastroenterology at Imperial NHS Trust. So, you know, initially we thought it would be short-term and it will go away, um, but obviously it kind of just stayed with us. By April 2020, the European Medicines Agency, along with other regulators around the world, had recommended that all licences for arinitidine be suspended. So why was it removed from pharmacy shelves? What are the alternatives for the hundreds of thousands of patients who relied on it? And will it ever return? I'm Dawn Connolly, Features Editor at the Pharmaceutical Journal, and I've spent the past few months speaking to experts and manufacturers to try to get some answers. To document the downfall of ranitidine properly, we need to go back in time to June 2019, when US-based analytical pharmacy Valishaw first identified NDMA contamination. Valishaw chemically tests every batch of medicines it buys before selling them on to patients. The company's co-founder and CEO, David Light, told me how he felt when the company made the discovery. It was our co-founder's infant daughter that had got ranitidine prescribed for her. And so as soon as it went into that screen for nitrosamines, we saw uh, just an astounding amount of NDMA. Um, and the more we looked into it, the more that the evidence was extremely clear that um, there was a fundamental problem of this NDMA uh, carcinogen uh, related to the actual molecule of Zantac, which is ranitidine. Valishaw had detected 3 million nanograms of MDMA per tablet, way higher than the FDA's safe limit of 96 nanograms per day. The company wasted no time filing an FDA citizen petition in September 2019, requesting that ranitidine be taken off the market. And with good reason, NDMA is one of the most well-characterised and potent animal carcinogens known. Although there are no data in humans, that's a trial that would struggle to recruit, NDMA has been classed as a probable human carcinogen by the World Health Organization. It's all around us. It's in the water supply. Because it's in the water supply, it's also in uh, the food that we eat. 
This is Michael White, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at the University of Connecticut in the U.S. The animals that eat the vegetables also have some NDMA in them. When they cure some meats, you can get some additional NDMA that's inside of it. But that's okay because, you know, there's a maximum amount that they know that as long as you stay below that level, that it's safe. It's when you start to exceed that level that you start to have problems. But how does the NDMA in our environment make its way into our medicines? Michael explained that for some medicines, NDMA can be introduced during the manufacturing process, when the solvents and catalysts used are sent to be cleaned or refurbished, as they say in the industry, so that they can be used again. In some of those manufacturing plants, they were unaware of the NDMA potential risk. And when they were refurbishing, they were either refurbishing them in equipment that had been used to refurbish other chemicals that had NDMA in them, or the chemicals were being commingled with other chemicals. When this was discovered, drug regulators around the world put together standards for manufacturers to ensure that it could no longer happen. So now if you're a company that makes finished pharmaceutical products, when you buy the active ingredient from another company, you're supposed to test it for NDMA. And then you're supposed to test your product for NDMA before, you know, you send it out the door. And if you do all those things, you should have pretty good confidence you won't have those problems. But with ranitidine, it was a different story because the NDMA wasn't being caused by contamination during the manufacturing process. It was the result of an instability within the drug molecule itself. The active ingredient, ranitidine, as it was breaking down on the shelf, as it was degrading, as it was sitting there on the shelf or in your medicine cabinet, was actually forming NDMA. So it had a dimethylamine group and it had uh, a nitrogen source inside that same tablet. So as those things degraded, the nitrogen source came over and uh, attached itself to the dimethylamine and turned into NDMA. After receiving Valishaw's petition, the FDA immediately began conducting its own tests on ranitidine, and it too found NDMA, but at much lower levels, similar to those you might find in common foods. The reason Valishaw had detected much higher levels was because of the high temperatures it used during the testing process. A second FDA citizen petition from a different company sparked more tests, and these confirmed that MDMA levels increase in ranitidine even under normal storage conditions, and increase significantly in samples stored at higher temperatures. By April 2020, regulators had requested that all prescription and over-the-counter ranitidine be removed from the market immediately. But the drama didn't end there. The following year, Valishaw and Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre in New York published a study that suggested NDMA might be formed from ranitidine inside the body. Michael wrote an editorial to accompany the study. What? they were suggesting is that, you know, in the human body, if you had enough stomach acid, you know, like a low pH, and you had a readily available nitrate source that you could create NDMA. And they said that, you know, this is something that you might be able to create inside the human body. There was only one human study that was available and it looked at urinary excretion of NDMA, and they showed really, really high concentration. So with these two studies, it became pretty concerning that maybe there was another way that you could be exposed to NDMA. So did this signal the final death knell for initidine? Not quite yet. 
The FDA recreated both of these studies and it found that, under normal physiological conditions, NDMA was not generated in the body. However, debate continues in this controversial area with lots of opinions about scenarios in which it might be possible. So it is theoretically possible if somebody went to uh, a hot dog eating contest and really, really jammed themselves and their stomach was uh, stretched to maximum capacity, that maybe you could develop a decent amount of NDMA, but uh, under normal circumstances in a regular person, it looks unlikely that body formation is going to be the main source. And then it just comes back to well, what happens as it sits on the, uh, on the shelf. Hot dog eating competitions aside, David points out that there are other ways in which levels of NDMA generated inside the body could be higher. There's a lot of other you know, uh, elements that could make for much higher exposure than just what is a standard one tablet of 150 milligrams at a standard physiological condition. I think a couple of those that are important to keep in mind is um, that you know, 150 milligrams is just one tablet, and this is over the counter. So you can take as many as you want. Um, and the common medical uh, prescription of ranitidine is 300 milligrams twice a day. So you're already quite a bit higher than what the FDA was testing. And the maximum dose is 6,000 milligrams a day, so 40 times higher than what was being tested. Another pressing question is whether taking ranitidine has actually led to people developing cancer. This is a difficult one to answer, but there's been a number of epidemiological studies that have attempted to find out. Here's what Michael has to say about the evidence so far. My review of that literature right now is that it's all over the place and it's really hard at the end of the day to say with confidence that it, uh, that it may or may not do those things with cancer. But I do think that the potential is there for people that were long-term users that, you know, had product that they were using, especially later on in their, uh, in their shelf lives, you know, closer to, uh, to their expiration date or after their expiration date, you know, that the potential was there for, um, for potential issues. You know, did the benefit from raising the stomach pH and reducing the risk of certain kind of cancers help to mask the risk that you took on for having other types of uh, other types of cancers. That that still remains to, to be seen. So it seems that the jury is still out on that question. And quite literally, in the US, numerous lawsuits have been filed against manufacturers of ranitidine and even against pharmacies that have supplied these products, but litigation is still in the early stages. It might be that we never find out for sure whether ranitidine causes cancer, but the potential risk was enough for regulators to completely remove it from the market. So, with ranitidine out of the picture, at least for the time being, what's happened to the hundreds of thousands of patients who are taking it? Before the suspension, ranitidine was available to buy over-the-counter relatively cheaply, and around half a million prescription items were being issued in England each month, far more than for any of the other H2 receptor antagonists, or H2RAs, like famotidine, sametidine and azatidine. Ranitidine's disappearance also has an impact across various specialties in hospitals, such as intensive care and oncology. I asked Mick and Patel how patients have been coping. The only guidance that we received was really to sort of uh, switch patients to PPIs. But it wasn't that simple. And essentially, a lot of these patients that were originally on H2RAs probably couldn't tolerate PPIs. Um, for one reason or another, so for example, they may have experienced AKI, so acute uh, kidney injury, 
um, and a particular type called acute interstitial nephritis or, or sort of may have experienced hyponatremia or hypomagnesemia, so some sort of electrolyte imbalances. So, so there are usually good reasons for these patients to be on H2RAs. Mickin's view on these difficulties is mirrored by Alistair Jones, a primary care network pharmacist who works across several GP practices at Total Health Excellence in Folkestone. It meant suddenly having to um, switch people to medicines that they might, may have tried before and not gotten on with, or were perhaps more of a concern to prescribe in the first place. Um, with the children, um, that meant initially having to use unlicensed suspension, which was there's not many of those patients around, but there are a few of them. And then with regards to to adults, it was a case of, I mean, every patient had to be looked at individually. You can't just do a wholesale switch. Oh, it's not like switching from one brand of, of a drug to another brand and their equivalent. Um, we had patients who could not be managed on a PPI alone and were on a combination of the two. And, and to stop one meant they became severely symptomatic. Uh, and then we had nowhere to go for these patients. And for those who couldn't be switched to a PPI, there were challenges with changing to the alternative H2RAs. Uh, there aren't many manufacturers of the alternatives and therefore supply was somewhat limited. Now the guidance that was coming out uh, of various sources at the time was to try and reserve these uh, remaining drugs for people that could not be switched to a PPI. However, uh, despite that, assuming, let's say for a second, that that was what everyone was doing, uh, there were still supply problems. And for months, we've uh, we had problems with trying to get people supplies of one and then that going out of stock. Then another one would come back in, but only briefly. I remember at times having to put all three alternatives on a patient's repeat or provide three prescriptions, for you know, one for each, and just say, see which one you can get. Although supplies of the alternatives now seem to have evened out a little, there are still issues with switching to or initiating them. Sometidine, for example, has numerous drug interactions, so is often unsuitable for older people taking lots of medicines. And famotidine and nazatidine are much pricier, at around £22 a month, compared with less than £2 for arinitidine. It has a massive impact on the drug budget, uh, nationally, uh, so ranitidine was really, really relatively cheap. Whereas, if you look at famotidine and nizatidine, um, it's far, far more expensive. It's not only the drug budget that has been affected, though. Because PPIs are far cheaper and more readily available than the alternative H2RAs, ranitidine's disappearance has put a dent in what has been a national drive to deprescribe PPIs over the past few years. What we try to do with deprescribing, the key thing is uh, we, we try to keep the patients on PPIs for the lowest effective dose and for the lowest interval of time as much as possible. And one of the strategies that we adopt in deprescribing is sometimes we um, step them down to a slightly less potent acid suppression, so a, a H2RA, and then we probably step them down to an alginate. And, and the reason why we try to do it in a slightly more systematic way is to avoid any rebound acid production. So it has a massive impact on the deprescribing strategy, yes. So with the impacts on patients, the drug budget and deprescribing in mind, the big question on everyone's lips is, will ranitidine ever make a comeback? I spoke to several manufacturers to find out. 
a spokeswoman for GSK, manufacturer of Zantac for the UK market, said that following the recall, the company conducted a thorough root cause investigation and decided to discontinue it globally. Sanofi, which supplies Zantac to the US market, recently reintroduced the brand as Zantac 360, but formulated with famotidine rather than ranitidine. However, a spokesperson told me that it has no plans to add ranitidine to its UK product portfolio, nor to include Zantac 360. And a spokesperson for Teva, a large generic manufacturer of ranitidine, told me that at the moment the company has no plans to reintroduce ranitidine back onto the market in the UK. There is a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel though. Accord Healthcare, another generic manufacturer, told me that one of its active pharmaceutical ingredient or API suppliers has had its certification of suitability reinstated for ranitidine. This basically validates the quality of the API by proving that it complies with the rules laid down in the monograph of the European Pharmacopeia and it's needed for market approval of the final product. The supplier in question, Solara, based in Bangalore, India, says it's the first among API manufacturers of ranitidine to have its certification of suitability restored. The company says that it's put in place robust manufacturing and quality processes to mitigate the risks of NDMA formation in ranitidine API. A spokesperson for Accord told me that the company's current focus is to identify a suitable API source and then to proceed with further drug product studies, assessing the manufacturing process and subsequent stability studies. At this stage, they said, Accord is reviewing the potential suitability of the API. However, Michael explains that although eliminating NDMA from the API will help, it may not solve the problem completely. If you can solve the API issue, then that means that uh, when the product comes, it starts out with less NDMA, but it'll still likely be generated as the product breaks down. Now, if you can get it down lower, you might have a longer shelf life than you would have had. You know, So let's say that the product starts out with 40 nanograms in it rather than, uh, uh, rather than 20, right? If you're starting with 40, it can be on the shelf a shorter period of time before it hits 96 than if you started out at, uh, at 20. And if you can get it down to zero, maybe you could have a shelf life that would be long enough to make it a viable option. You also have to think about how people may actually be using it. And even though you tell people we want you to put it in a low humidity, uh, temperature controlled place, you know, uh, most people may still put it in their medicine cabinet and that's in the bathroom and you're showering in there and it's, uh, and it's humid. Or some people may say, well, you know, I get uh, heartburn, you know, after I eat at, uh, at McDonald's or after I go to uh, this other place. So I'm going to leave it in my car. And then in your car, it's 120 degrees. We don't want the chemical concentration to be below 96 nanograms under ideal conditions. We want it to be below 96 nanograms in, uh, in the real world where people are likely to be exposed to something that is, uh, that's dangerous. So will we see ranitidine back on pharmacy shelves anytime soon? I asked David, Alistair and Michael for their predictions. I think the prospects of ranitidine itself coming back are uh, are poor. I'd like to say yes, but uh, I am conscious of the fact that it's probably going to take quite a lot of time and effort and money to reformulate it, which I understand is what's necessary um, to avoid the contamination issues. Um, bearing in mind there's no patent on it anymore, is there going to be the will for that to happen? Um, my bet would be no. 
I think it would be uh, uh, it would be challenging for them to try to make a comeback. One because uh, you know logistically there would be a lot of science that you would uh, that you would have to do. It's not something that uh, that probably can't be surmounted. You just need to be able to show that with the expiration date you have, under a variety of different conditions, you're far below that NDMA level. You know, so that may mean reformulating the product, putting fancier types of coatings on it, putting it in different types of packaging, you know, that will give you assurance that you wouldn't be forming uh, NDMA. Um, And people would be willing to do that science if they thought at the end of the day that the market was going to be receptive to them when they ended up coming back out. Mickin is more hopeful. No, I think there is a market. I, I think, you know, if you think about how many, you know, how many people probably buy or bought Rentadine over the counter and uh, how, how widely it was prescribed, I think it's enough in for them to kind of, um, to try and solve the problem. But even if Rentadine did make a comeback, would the public have enough confidence in it to take it? When it comes back out on the market, are you going to be able to reassure all of the public that those measures that you did were uh, going to be sufficient, right? Because uh, originally when it came out, they didn't think they were going to be getting a cancer-causing chemical in their, uh, in their product. Um, are they going to say, well, you fooled me once, um, you know? These are all factors that pharmaceutical companies will be weighing up because at the end of the day, the ball is firmly in their court. The European regulator has specified a long list of conditions that need to be met for the suspension of ranitidine to be lifted. And these apply in the UK too. They include controlling the amount of NDMA generated during manufacture and storage and showing that NDMA is not formed after ingestion. One question that I still have is, could there be other medicines out there sitting on pharmacy shelves or in bathroom cabinets quietly generating NDMA? Michael told me, that there are other APIs with a dimethylamine group that might have the potential to generate NDMA after hot temperature storage or ingestion, and that these need to be investigated. In fact, there are signs that another H2RA may have the same problem. After high temperature testing, Valishaw showed that nizatidine forms NDMA, but at lower levels than ranitidine. Some batches of nizatidine have since been recalled in the US and Canada. All of this points to the fact that healthcare professionals need more guidance on how to manage patients who really need an HGRA. Pharmaceutical companies also have a responsibility to make sure the remaining HGRAs are safe and invest in them to help ease shortages and drive down prices. It might not be the end of the story for Renitidine just yet. We'll be keeping a close eye on what happens with that reinstated certificate for Solara's API, so keep checking the PJ website where we'll bring you all of the latest developments as they happen. But for now, from the PJ Pod, we'll say goodbye. And thanks, as always, for listening. Here at the PJ, we really appreciate your support for our journalism. The best way to make sure you never miss an episode is to hit, follow or subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. The PJ Pod is brought to you by the Pharmaceutical Journal, the official journal of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. This episode was produced by Jeff Marsh and presented by me, Dawn Connolly, with support from Emma Wilkinson, Nigel Prates and Julia Robinson. See you next month. Bye-bye.